Welcome to the Millwork Leaders Podcast. I'm Tim Tritton. Thanks for joining us. I have conversations with leaders in the wood manufacturing industry. We'll hear their backstories and learn from their experiences. If you're a fan of the stories of how people drive their businesses and the lessons they've learned, please jump in. Hello, and welcome to another episode of No Work Leaders. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Norb Stransky. He is retired, former senior project manager with R.L. Turner Construction General Contractors out of Zionsville, Indiana. Norb, welcome. Hey, good morning, Tim. Glad to be here. Yeah, I appreciate that. So today's episode, we're going to be slightly adjacent to direct millwork we're going to get a general contractor's perspective. And um, I guess to begin with, Norb, can you just tell us about your role in the uh, construction industry? Well, most recently, the last, say, 25 years with Arl Turner as a project manager, uh, I was overseeing multiple projects. And, uh, you know, they varied anywhere from, ironically enough, from a couple thousand dollars to maybe $20 million. And again, as a project manager, you know, responsibilities included, you know, uh, drafting purchase orders, coordination meetings, um, you know, those kind of things that all have to be done to make sure the project is uh, progressing. And then obviously scheduling, making sure these people are showing up, our subcontractors are queued in to our our master plan to make sure that, you know, the uh, materials and personnel are available when we need them to, to you know, to get the job done. And um, <clears throat> at any given time, I probably had, say, between five and six projects. And there were various stages. Some were starting, some were ending. So there there was always plenty of activity to keep you busy. And um, so, I mean, to me, it was fulfilling. It, it kept me busy for sure. And, and I enjoyed the work. I enjoyed the people. And, uh, and that's not to say we didn't have challenges, uh, whether it was, you know, all the challenges that every other general, general contractor faces, I guess. But uh, uh, I've enjoyed it, and uh, I'd do it again. Right. So were you, you're fully focused on the commercial market, right? We are. Uh, as Arl Turner, um, there was a time I, I come to realize after I got to Arl Turner that the, it actually started out as a residential. Bob Turner started it as a residential contractor. But my time there was wholly and solely with commercial construction. Okay. And then within that commercial construction space, what were the type of projects you guys focused on? You know, that's what I loved. It was just the sheer variety of it. I mean, uh, you know, in some manner or form, you know, I kind of wanted to do a little bit of everything. So whether it was an elementary school or perhaps a high school or something at the college level, seeing, you know, you know, from an educational point of view, seeing those kind of structures going in place, you know, fire stations, you know, uh, you know, work in the hospitals, you know, that we did uh, down at uh, the IU campus downtown and uh, work we did up at Grissom Air Reserve Base, you know. Uh, so we kind of, you know, it stretched the gamut. You know, we did work uh, at Manchester College. You know, we did a science center there. We did uh, work on, on the Purdue campus. And uh, so, I mean, and... And in my case, you know, we also did work for Cook Imaging and we did work for uh, Eli Lilly. And and that's what I truly enjoyed. I mean, we didn't peg ourselves to a particular client or otherwise. I mean, we hard bid the majority of the work that we got. And, uh, 
you know, what I enjoyed was just the sheer variety of what we're, of what we were doing. And uh, I, I liked the variety. I liked the diversity. Cool. Love that. Um, so I'd like to keep these podcasts chronological if we can a little bit. So maybe we should back up a little bit. So where were you born? <clears throat> I was born and raised in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> okay, nice. So it's uh, there's a bit of a story there, and it, it's I'll uh, I'll just offer this. Uh, uh, my parents are immigrants. Uh, they were displaced as a result of World War II. Uh, both my mom and dad and my sister, in fact, were uh, had a comfortable life, if you will, um, in uh, Slovenia, which is a northern province of what uh, was later Yugoslavia. Uh, obviously, World War II kind of turned their life upside down and, and also my sister's life. And uh, after the war, um, you know, they were, you know, the initial swath through, through Yugoslavia, and this is a bit of World War II history was the Germans, and then obviously Stalin came in with the communists, and they didn't particularly want to be associated with either. So they um, migrated uh, as refugees into Austria and from Austria into Italy, and then it was while in Italy that uh, they began the process of uh, finding um, a path um, out of Europe and uh, to uh, to the States, but as I spoke to my parents about this over the years, they relate to me a story that as part of this immigration process, they were initially destined to go to Argentina. And uh, they missed the boat, literally. They, they got their paperwork late. Their, you know, their directions were late. So they arrived at the port, and lo and behold, the boat had left. And so they're not getting text messages to tell no. them to <laughs> be here, right? <laughs> no. So, you know, mom and dad were a little disappointed, oh. and uh, they came to find out that uh, they had a sponsorship uh, with a Catholic church in, uh, outside of Cleveland in a place called Chardon, Ohio. And uh, so that's kind of began their journey uh, from Europe into the States. And uh I have to share this only because as I kind of look, reflect back on that and I, and I question myself as to, you know, how I would be able to react to being totally uprooted from your uh, country of birth and wind up in a country that, uh, you know, you don't speak the language, you have um, difficulties just comprehending the new culture. And uh, what I've come to appreciate more is what my sister went through because this was all going on as she was an early teenager. Mm. And I remember my <clears throat> parents telling me that as they finally got to the States and they got settled in with this uh, sponsored church, uh, my sister had about three months to learn the language and be able to get into school. And she did. And uh, she did graduate high school and so on and so forth. But anyways, um, after their time in, in Chardon, they moved to Cleveland. And I think it helped them immensely because there's a large Slovenian uh, community in Cleveland. So they were able to assimilate themselves a little better, at least in a area of Cleveland where they could still speak their native language, but yet had the resources there where they could, uh, if there were questions specific to whatever they were, you know, whatever they needed, there are resources there that kind of bridge, you know, and help them along. So it, uh, it all worked out for the best. And, uh, it was at that time that uh, mom and dad decided to have three, three 
children, and there's, I'm the I have an older brother, younger brother, and myself. So okay, I love that story. You know what I find so interesting about it is, and I've got some dear friends who are war refugees, and 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 I've learned from their experience. But when somebody comes over in those circumstances, there's a different sense of urgency to become established. Mm-hmm. You have nothing. You're trying to figure out how I make my way in this United States. And there's loads of opportunity. And I think that as Americans, as a fourth generation American, I, I don't know, I probably take a lot of it for granted how hard people had to work to establish themselves and, and move forward. And, um, you know, nothing's handed to you, but if you work, it's all there for you. By all means, um, the stories that my mom and dad would tell is that, I mean, they had a comfortable life in Europe. And, uh, you know, the war turned all that up upside down. And uh, so they're very adamant, at least with us, that, you know, uh, education was by far paramount to, to their mindset. And um, it played into <laughs> some of the... Uh, coaching I would say my parents gave me and right and, and all of us but uh, um, no no it's uh, as I get older I'm more appreciative of and have more empathy for you know what my parents went through and, spe- and my sister yeah for sure it's um what's well, hard to appreciate when you're young you don't yeah. understand all of it and um, it's always easier to look back and look at it and we were having this conversation before we started the interview about career choices and the, and the choices our children are making and, and how they navigate all that. And, um, and, and I want to come back to this a little bit because it all ties into this career path and the choice that no work industry has in particular, but you know, the, the idea of satisfaction, in your work versus just the grind of the work and, and all in the mix of that. Um, sometimes I feel a newer generation puts maybe too much importance on it's all got to be perfect for me. Um, and I don't want to pigeonhole anybody, but I think there is some of that, um, an unwillingness to accept just a certain level of, uh, I'm just gonna have to really grind. And, um, you know, it's my older son, uh, works as a professor and he's down at the university of Miami and he's 42 years old right now. And he and I will have conversations about incoming students that he works with. And, and I'm oftentimes puzzled because, you know, I look at Adam and I say, well, gosh, you're 40 years old. I mean, you're part of this generation, but he tells me that's not the case. I mean, he, he can differentiate, you know, his attitude being early 40s from these incoming students who are in their early 20s. So even within that span of, say, 15 or 20 years, um, you know, he, he, there is a bit of frustration even on his part to say that, hmm. I don't know that they have the same passion that I do when I was at that age. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, it's interesting. And I, I do need to make a, a statement here because my children are probably listening. And oh. the one things, one of the things that I'm proudest of both my kids are that they're just hard workers. They're willing to grind. They definitely want satisfaction in their career, but they're also just very hard workers. And, and that's the thing that I see from some and having had experience hiring and firing, um, so many people came in with zero experience and zero willingness to gain the experience by working up the ladder. So, now it's funny. I, I read an article. It's a short article. It's only a page long, and it was written by Zig Ziglar. He's a motivational speaker <laughs> and uh, 
it's uh, I've come to learn more about him. He unfortunately has passed away some odd years ago, but uh, you know he was making commentary about you know uh, employment, and uh, he relayed the story. But anyways, the bottom line of the story was you know the intent. You know what is your intent when when you do take on a job? You know it's I've had many persons tell me it's like put yourself in your boss's role and you tell me what the expectation would be if you were the boss. You know, it's being proactive to say, yeah, I can do my job and I can do whatever. But, you know, if I was the boss, what would what would the boss want from me? Yeah, I can dig a ditch, but, you know, there's other aspects of this as to, you know, where the spoils go? Is it a straight line? Is elevation correct? You know, it's, it's you know, not just doing the mechanics of it, but understanding the big picture, understanding the intent, and put yourself in your boss's role and say, all right, if I was running the show here, what are, what are my expectations? And uh, so, I mean, it's, uh, in that particular article, it, it kind of honed in on, you know, the intent. You know, it's, yeah, I can do the mechanical things, but, uh, you know, What's your intent and, uh, you know, are you motivated enough to exceed those expectations? Yes. Perspective is everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's a two-way street, right? Also from the employer's perspective. Yeah. You know, understanding um, the employee's perspective of how maybe you're read and how your actions are being perceived. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I ad nauseum, I had this conversation on this podcast about, you know, that um, I'm famous for not always completely understanding you know, how I'm being perceived and what my, my actions are, or look like for the employees. All right. We're going to get back to that, but right. I want to, um, let's just round out your, your upbringing. So what was life like growing up in the Cleveland area? Um, you know, there was three of us and we just had a good time. <laughs> okay. So the stereotypical American. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, my dad worked, he was a blue collar. Um, he worked, uh, he did various jobs, but you know, his background and his skill set was such that he finally latter part of his years, he worked as a machinist and he worked in, in various tool and, die, tool and die shops, uh, in around Cleveland. And, uh, but I guess the most fun job he had is that one of the first jobs he got when uh, when my parents moved to Cleveland, he worked in a bottling company, mm-hmm. you know, a couple blocks away from the house. And bottling company to mean they, um, it was soda. <laughs> so, you know, it was fun. My, my mom would take us over there just to visit dad and we'd always get a little bottle of soda or something. Sure. But, uh, but you know, it's... Uh, we had a playground that was just around the block. Uh, we had other kids in the neighborhood that were our age. And ironically enough, we were close enough to Lake Erie that, you know, on occasion we'd take our bikes and we'd go the three or four, five, six blocks and get down to the lake. In hindsight, that may not have been the best idea because the lake at that time wasn't <laughs> wasn't very clean. But uh, it was fun just to get on a beach over there. Not, not that we went swimming per se, but... You know, it was just diverse enough where you could be, you know, on a beach and, you know, ironically enough, we'd do silly things that little boys do and get a little G.I. Joe's out there and whatever. Right, yeah. <laughs> what was the general feeling of the neighborhood you grew up in? Were they, Was it a hard-working, hard-driving area? You know, it was, uh, if you can imagine, this was inner-city Cleveland. I mean... 
you know, try to paint a picture there. I mean, these were individual homes that were well-maintained. Um, this is a blue-collar, middle-class neighborhood. Uh, a lot of the functions centered around the church. And, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that this was a Slovenian enclave, I mean, all this, everything we needed was in the neighborhood. I mean, we had you know, three or four different grocery stores. I mean, we had our hardware store. There was a clothing store. So literally anything that mom and dad needed was right there. And uh, I don't remember when we got our first car per se, but, uh, you know, it, the what I enjoyed is that, and looking back on that, is just the fact that, you know, I could walk to anywhere I wanted to get. And we had bicycles. So if you want to take a bit of an adventure, you get on your bike and take off and and go someplace, and I, you know, I, I ponder that because um, I remember the first McDonald's opened in Cleveland that at least was in proximity to where we were living, and we were just fascinated by that and said, "Gosh, we got to get one of these hamburgers," you know. And but unfortunately, you know, it was on you know if we were on East Sixty Third Street. This McDonald's was like on a hundred and twentieth Street, so it was. 60 blocks away and you know we tell our mom that you know a couple of us were going to get on our bikes and we we're going to make this trek over to this mcdonald's and you know we get a quarter 50 cents or something and we thought we were rich at that point with that kind of money and uh we'd pedal over there you know mom would say okay fine <laughs> right <laughs> i know <laughs> yeah it's like how do we get away with that and uh you know my mindset goes back to is like, gosh, would I trust my kids to do that today? You know, it was um, it was a good time. It was a it was a close knit neighborhood, and uh, you know, it really afforded us um, anything we needed. And uh, it wasn't grandiose by by any means, and uh, uh, it was good. You're making me think of community because what you've just the picture you've just painted is everything we need, everything you needed was within your community, really, right? The dependents right. you had, you had a, a, a friend in social network, <clears throat> excuse me, you had um, the stores, you had work, you had your church, all of that was in the community. Mm-hmm. And there was really not much need for anything else outside of the community. No, it was, <laughs> you know, the thought of venturing outside of that area was, was kind of a novelty. It's like, gosh, you know, why are we going here? Yeah, you know, the irony is, uh, my sister, who is, you know, older than than we were by that time, um, she had gone ahead and gotten married, and uh, they moved to one of the suburbs of Cleveland. So it was always a bit of an adventure to go visit her and her her <laughs> husband because, like, oh my gosh, you know, we're making this big trip going out to, uh, I forget the name of the suburb, but that was that was a big deal, and they, um, you know, they were. Uh, it was a nice house. It was on an acre or two. So, I mean, they had land. I mean, yeah, you know, for us in our little house, you know, we had a little backyard and we had, wasn't much of a front yard, but that's something. Well, and, you know, in today's modern culture, I feel like we have largely, my experience has been suburbia. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that it feels less like community. Um than traditional American communities have been. And I don't even know what traditional means really, I guess. But um, I guess the way I think of it, 
um, you know, say 50 years ago is different. And suburbia has changed that. And, and the reason I say that is because my early adult life was living in traditional suburbia in Indianapolis. And then I moved out to the country. Um, the interesting thing is the community is richer out here, even though my closest neighbor is a quarter mile away, half mile away, three quarters of a mile away versus where we lived previously. We'd pull in our garage at the garage door, leave, live next to the same neighbor for 13 years. And I don't know that we ever had dinner with them. (laughs) It's, you know, it's, it's an opportunity that I perhaps underappreciate, you know, having that experience um, to me was not just the way it was, but to your point, Tim, um, you know, if you haven't lived that or had had that experience, it's hard to appreciate you know, for, for what you had there. And, and it's taken me, you know, a while to, to really appreciate the fact that uh, anything we wanted or needed was, you know, within walking distance. Exactly. And, and so the point I want to get back to, and, and we will, is that with supply chain issues and I don't know what the right word is for, you know, we, I feel like in the last decade or so, it's been a move towards manufacturing a global manufacturing environment. And we're going the other way now, in my opinion, because of other issues, supply, war, all these things that are happening, but we've got a community that's rich in this construction community. So it's, it's contractors, it's all the tradesmen, it's mill workers. And, um, and I, I would like to encourage and promote that we're not leaning on each other enough. It's, you know, it's a discussion I've had with other project managers and um, because the majority of the jobs that we undertake are hard bid, you know, we're, we're pretty much committed to whoever the low bidder is. And, um, but there are occasions where, you know, we might be selected to by an owner to do a particular job where we're, we could be a bit more selective as to who we invite to the, you know, to the project. And I often tell people, you know, it's through the course of my career, I've established relationships with different subcontractors. You know, I look at that and say, well, I want to know more about you and I want you to know more about me so that we're in fact creating a a relationship that is beyond just the terms and conditions of a contract. I remember um, prior to working with R.L. Turner, um, I worked for a very large commercial contractor, and we did a lot of construction management work. But the mantra that came from the president and the regional manager was, you know, if you're going to work as a general contractor, even in our context as a construction manager, you better understand how these people make money. Because if your attitude is nothing more than you want to be the pompous ass that's going to tell these people what to do, and yet you have no knowledge and no understanding as to how they do business, how they make money, that says you're doing this corporation an injustice. You know, it's you need to understand so that as you develop your plan and your schedule, you have to be able to appreciate what their work cycle is like so you can better integrate them into the schedule to get us done. Because the notion of simply going into a project and just being um, the bully, if you will, uh, 
in the end, to me, is not how we want to do business. Well, it's a disservice to the customer at the end of the day because mm-hmm. you don't get the best for the customer. It's it's true. And uh, what I have to remind people of is that, you know, oftentimes, you know, there may be, you know, a particular contractor that we've worked with and we've got a good relationship with. But then, unfortunately, something goes wrong and there's a hiccup or there's a dimensional bust or some material didn't arrive. And it's like these people all of a sudden want to divorce this contractor and say, I don't want to work with them anymore. And I said, well, it doesn't work that way. You have a relationship, you know, you know, with your family and your wife and things are not always, you know, perfect, except the fact that if you are in a relationship that you feel is a relationship that we should maintain, understand there will be good days, there'll be bad days. And I can tell you working for Arl Turner, not every job we did was perfect. Not every job we did merited a pat on the back because we're all human. We all make mistakes. And um, I can look back on all the projects I've ever worked on. And, you know, I'm hoping that uh, people can look at me and say, well, you know, I didn't make money, but they treated me fairly. Well, exactly. And, I, you know, that's one of the things I've um, I looked back on my career fondly is that I, I do believe that I could call anybody I've ever worked for who has hired me as a, as a contractor in any form or anybody I've done business with that I can call them and we can go have lunch. There have definitely been problems, and that's just business. My takeaway from all of this is that, like some people always tell me, you know, Bad news does not get better over time. So if there's an issue, let's deal with it up front right now. You know, if you have to, you know, face-to-face works with me, but I would tell anyone that you have to understand that in this process, this assemblage process that we call general contracting, not all the parts and pieces are always going to fit the way they're supposed to. And it, behooves us all that you know we take the time to let's be open and and honest with each other and if there's an issue let's talk it out and figure it out right it's interesting because you it just made me think a little deeper about as a general contractor what you're doing is executing a plan that somebody has developed as a theory (laughs) (laughs) and um you know i mean a lot of it's you know based on educated experience and known results many times but there are, there are lots of theories about how things are going to go together that are. There's a lot of moving parts that uh, to, to make it successful all have to kind of be synchronized with each other <laughs> to make sure we get from point A to point B. <laughs> right. And uh, I was fortunate in my early career uh, working for this other contractor. You know, we worked on some, you know, mega projects, you know, when these things are over $100 million, there's, there's a lot going on. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. Let's go back and just kind of round out your raised in Cleveland. And then where did you go to college? Well, uh, while in Cleveland, uh, I attended a Jesuit college preparatory high school. And uh, that led me, well, here's kind of the little filler here is growing up, uh, my neighbor was a carpenter Mm. and I watched him, you know, essentially tear this house down to the studs and then rebuild it. And he would do one section, he'd do another section, but it was literally, you know, 10 feet away from me watching. And as I was watching this going on, and I was enthralled by it. And I said, gosh, you know, it's just unbelievable that, 
you know, we could dismantle this house in this manner and then reassemble it. And, and uh, I remember having a conversation with my parents and I say, you know, I, I want to be a carpenter. And the irony is that after he, you know, this particular family or he got done remodeling his house, the family lived in there for some odd years, but then he sold it and a new family moved in. Well, guess what? He was a finished carpenter. And in his basement, he was making furniture. And he actually, uh, his day job was a cabinet maker. <laughs> Love that. So anyways, so I, I got to expose to see something totally, you know, uh, you know, different and watched, you know, what he could do. And I said, gee, what is this? this is really something I want to do. Because, you know, my brothers and I were always tinkering, you know. Uh, you know, if, if mom and dad got us a bicycle, it was probably missing something. <laughs> so we'd have to, in some manner or form, make it work. And again, my dad's background as a machinist, I mean, there was this, maybe it's in our genes that we just like, you know, putting things together and making things. And uh, so anyways, uh, I had the conversation with my parents. And I said, you know, I want to be a carpenter. And uh, they said, no. <laughs> and I uh, said, no, you're going to college. So I kind of pondered that, and I said, well, you know, if I can't be a carpenter, what's, what can I do in college that would kind of be maybe same or similar? But anyways, so I chose architecture. So uh, I wound up uh, leaving high school and attending the University of Detroit, and uh, I was in their architecture program and uh, graduated from there. And um, while I was in college, I joined Army ROTC. There's a backstory here. It's it's not that uh, while I was in high school, the Vietnam War was kind of winding down, but they still had a draft going. And a draft at that time was predicated on a lottery based on your date of birth. And so in my senior year, they pulled the numbers and my dates, and I, you know, and I, I wish I could tell you I hit the jackpot, but I was in the top 10. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, gosh, what does all this mean? Because, you know, even the prior year, they were drafting, you know, up to, I forget what the number was. I really kind of apprehensive thinking, gosh, am I going to start my freshman year in college and then be drafted? Spoke to a couple people and they said, well, you know, if you sign up for ROTC, you can get a deferment. And I said, okay, well, what does that mean? And and they essentially said, you're not making a commitment. All you're doing is just taking a, a ROTC course. And I said, okay, I can do that. So anyways... When I got on the campus, I found my way over to the Army ROTC office, and um, I said, you know, I'd want to take a, you know, take one of these ROTC courses. It was only two credit hours. It wasn't a big deal. But, you know, it put my mind at ease, thinking, well, I, I would not get drafted, you know. And uh, But while I was, you know, taking these ROTC classes, I got to know the staff and the faculty there, which was all military. And, you know, I had really no... You know, uh, none of my family was in the military, so this was all kind of new to me as to, you know, what does all this mean? But anyways, um, academically, I was doing pretty good, so they approached me, or one of the particular officers approached me and said, you know, would you be interested in a in a Army ROTC scholarship? And I said, sure. You know, my parents were making a ton of money. I was attending a private school, and I'm thinking, eh this might be good. My brother was two years behind me. My older brother elected not to go to college. He did spend time in the Navy, but, uh, um, and so it was just going to be me. And I said, God, this is going to be a burden on my family for two of us to be in college because my younger brother did want to go to college. 
So uh, long story short, they suggest that I apply for this you know, our Army ROTC scholarship and uh, went through the process, went through a review board and uh, got notified, you know, summer between sophomore, summer between my freshman and sophomore year that I'd gotten this. It was a three-year full scholarship, paid tuition, books and fees, and gave me a stipend. And I looked at this and I said, oh my God, this is, this is great. And uh, ironically, the University of Detroit had also given me a scholarship. So my room and board was covered too. So this was going to be like, my God, it's not going to cost me anything. Plus, I'm getting a stipend. It was $100 a month at the time. <clears throat> so anyways, uh, I told my parents about this. And they looked at me and said, no, bad idea, bad idea. And uh, I didn't listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> I signed on the dotted line. And, uh, you know, I don't know that I fully understood the implications of what I just signed. <laughs> But it came with a six-year commitment. Uh, long story short, um, I got my degree in architecture, uh, and then an hour later, I was raising my right hand, and I was commissioned as a second lieutenant at the United States Army. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, uh, you know, I felt fortunate because I was uh, graduating. Uh, my class, my architecture class, I think maybe had 60 folks in there, and I felt good that, I, hey, I was leaving out of here, and I had a job. What, yeah. what, so what was the climate like in terms of the economy and opportunities at that time? Architecture as a whole, I mean, we're talking 1976 is when I graduated from the University of Detroit. And the economy, the inflation rate was high. You know, it wasn't the best of, you know, climates for young kids coming out of school looking for jobs. It was post-Vietnam at this point, and... Uh, I felt fortunate. I said, well, uh, I don't know what this Army thing's all about, but I got a job. <laughs> right, yeah. It's important to understand all of that. That, But even in the – I know that those were challenging times in the 70s with inflation and the things that, you know, we, we're talking about now. Um, there's always opportunity. Yeah, it's uh, – and, and I'll piggyback on that to say is that uh, I did spend my four years on active duty, and, and, and I was fortunate because uh, I was commissioned as an officer in the United States Army, but I was in the Corps of Engineers. So I got assigned to a construction unit in Fort Carson, Colorado. I was, to me, I thought, I you know, this is great. You know, I'm actually doing construction. Uh, a lot of the work we did was horizontal work. You know, it was roads and dozers and that kind of stuff, but... Uh, during my time in the service, we also did, you know, we did renovations and things like that. And I was just getting more and more um, really kind of excited over this whole notion of construction because really my time in school as an architect was primarily driven to, you know, here's a program, here's the land, develop a design, a schematic, and so on and so forth. But this was really having a crew of folks who were actually building something. You know, and, uh, and I was kind of excited about that. And I really decided at that point in time that you know, I'm not going to pursue my degree in architecture. I want to pursue construction. So before I left uh, you know, Fort Carson and Colorado Springs, I had sent resumes out and I was looking for jobs. I was hitting, you know, all the general contractors within the general or within the Colorado Springs area. And a good friend of mine who had left the service two years prior was working for a general contractor. And I said, great, you know, I can, you know, I, maybe I can land something here. And I got the same answer from 
every one of those general contractors says, we don't hire architects. <laughs> okay. So I asked the obvious question. I said, well, would you hire an engineer? And they said, sure. So I said, okay, I got to get a degree in engineering. And that, uh, after I got out of the service, uh, I was fortunate to get accepted into the graduate program uh, in engineering at uh, the University of Michigan, <laughs> which got me my construction engineering and management degree at a graduate level, which was, you know, in hindsight, I'm thinking, how in the world did I ever pull that off? Because um, when I was looking for programs that would get me uh, an engineering degree, the majority of the programs I spoke to all said the same thing. You don't have an undergraduate engineering degree. Uh, how or why the University of Michigan gave me the break, uh, I don't know. Uh, my acceptance there was conditional. They identified, I think, five courses, and they said, for us to be give you a graduate degree in engineering, we feel you have to take these undergraduate courses as these are core engineering courses that have to complement your degree. So uh, to me, it was like, you know, no big deal, I'll do it. Uh, but uh, so I got a smattering of what every engineer typically be exposed to but uh, I felt fortunate this was now 81 and uh, the economy was going from bad to worse mm, yeah <laughs> was that was that the era when interest rates were really high yeah I can remember mom and dad were kind of you know on the one hand they were you know their savings account was making 12 or 18 or 15 percent inflation was out of control I think Reagan was coming into office and trying to get this under control and um I remember sitting uh, in my room uh, at the University of Michigan and, I, and I'm churning out these uh, resumes and I have lists that I've extracted from the library of every darn, you know, general contracting firm in the United States. And I had a list of over 300 firms. How are you reaching out? Are you um, just sending them letters? Uh, this is all... You're, you're not zipping off an email? No, that didn't exist. You know, the irony is I graduated with a degree in architecture and never never touched a computer, you know, out of coming out of that program. Mm -hmm. And then in the same light, you know, I graduated with a graduate degree in engineering and never had a computer. I worked with a team that we did a schedule but this required us to feed information into a mainframe that would then spit out a schedule for us. So I was, you know, we were the last group that I think, you know, had these different degrees and never had the opportunity to work with a personal computer. And in many respects that, uh, you know, it became obvious very early in my career that this was the direction that things were going and I better embrace this. And I can remember, purchasing my first personal computer and it was a $5,000 investment. I can remember that feeling as well. And I, I know that I paid more for my first computer <laughs> than I paid for the one I currently run now. Which, well, and the one that I paid more for was uh, ridiculously inept. No, it's uh, when I, when I ponder and I think about, I remember I was excited because when I bought the computer, the hard drive was partitioned because there was a restriction where you had like 32 megabytes of information that the DOS system could negotiate. And in my case, I had a 40 megabytes, so they partitioned the other eight 
a little, you know, so that that was inf- that was there that I could use. And I thought, my God, I'm pretty hot stuff. I got a <laughs> 40 megabyte hard drive. Yeah, wow. But anyways, it's uh, it's all good. But, and, but you've lived on, you've lived through all of it. Um, so you know, I I talk a lot about. And it's true for all industries, but, you know, focused on the millwork industry, um, I think in many regards, if you're not embracing the digital technology, you're really going to struggle. And it has to be, I have this conversation with these people when I consult on the machinery side. It's, listen, you need to get that engineering, and I call it engineering, but it's the computer digital. By all means, you know, when you look at that particular industry, I remember when I was with um, my other employers, Gilbane Building Company, but I got us, uh, we had a large project over at the University of Illinois. It was a large laboratory building. I mean, there was casework, institutional casework, you know, that was in every one of these offices. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the that casework order was in the millions of dollars. And, um, and I was a project engineer, and my project manager told me, it says, I want you to book a flight. I want you to go. This was Kwani making this uh, this casework, this uh, laboratory casework, and I want to make sure that they are on track to deliver what we need when we need it. And I love this, tr- you know, these trips because I would. There's other occasions where we've done this, where you know, if you got a third party manufacturing who has a very key component to to your project, let's check up on them. Right. <laughs> And uh, but I spent a day with uh, Kiwani in their facility, and I, it was one of the Carolinas, and, I, and they showed me the whole process from you know the point to get approved shop drawings back to this whole process as to you know when the end product is made. But it was all hand labor. Mm. I mean, every piece was you know walked through the factory, and uh, someone else or another team would do some portion of this assembly. And, you know, there was zero automation. But we're talking about, you know, now we're talking mid-'80s, and, you know, that whole automation boom hadn't yet really taken hold. But obviously from where I sit today and I look at where this industry is going, the reality is is that between the labor shortages that we have, automation is the key. I don't believe you can survive and be competitive unless you can take this process, this is, you know, this assembly process and start introducing these CNC machines that will start cutting your material, cutting your rabbits, your, all these other joints and things and um, start assembling these things. And from my perspective, as I look at general contracting or just construction as a whole, I am convinced, and this is whether it's at the residential, you know, arena or in the commercial arena, that we have to start seriously thinking about modular construction taking place off-site in a controlled climate where these components are brought to the job site and simply assembled on the job site. We do too much work on these project sites that could very well be done in, you know, in a more controlled environment and that's one of the challenges we always have. You know, it's too hot, too cold, too wet. It's raining. It's leaking. It's my famous adage: you have to control what you can because there's so many things that are going to go wrong that you can't. You know, and and the irony is that when 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 I speak to this, you know, what people don't understand is all of these 
ocean liners are built in a modular fashion. You know, we're building six, 7,000 sweet boats that are all modular. And, and it's not to say that the construction industry hasn't accepted that because I've read different articles over the years where um, there are, we are beginning to introduce, you know, these modular formats. And uh, I remember some odd years ago, I read an article about a particular hotel or something where the entire bathroom suite was assembled off-site. And it was simply interjected into the project. So, uh, you know, and, you know, and I'm not versed enough because I know that overseas, whether it's Japan or some of these other countries, that they have taken that to an altogether different level. And I think they've actually uh, assembled skyscrapers in this modular format. Mm, right. So it's, um, you know, I see that, you know, being very advantageous, you know, from simply con controlling the environment so that you can produce a better product and not be encumbered by, you know, all the silly things we have to deal with on site that, you know, it's like I said, it's too hot, it's too cold, it's too wet or otherwise. Why do you think the construction industry in general has been slow to react to that? I, it, it's my assumption it's because we've had this, this overabundance of this resource called labor. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're, when, you, when you do the math, it's, it's hard sometimes to make it work. Um, has been historically, but we're not, we're no longer in that environment. No, it's, I, I'm in total agreement, Tim. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because, you know, I, I do a lot of reading in, in the building sciences and, and understanding, you know, how a building, you know, reacts to in the environment, the environment that we create inside a house or a building and how it reacts to the external environment. And I remember this conversation going on numerous times is with regards to why in the world in the early 1900s did we build homes with no insulation? And the same reframe is always the time. Fuel was cheap. Energy was cheap. And, you know, until, you know, the cost of natural gas and all these other fossil fuels became extremely expensive that we finally said, gosh, let's insulate this house. Let's be more efficient. And I draw the same parallel with labor. You know, as long as there's plenty of labor, we're not going to push the envelope. But now that labor has become such a, you know, such a vital resource and it's not available as it was 50 years ago, we got to reset our, you know, we got to rethink our mindset. And uh, let's understand that we've got less labor resources and truth be told i don't know how many guys i'm going to find that want to lay block when it's 30 degrees the wind is blowing it's cold i'm miserable and you know why am i doing this and uh, but and it's because of the labor resources are diminished so they actually have choices now oh, so yeah. i mean historically it was well i have no choice if i want to put food on the table for my family then i'm going to have to lay block when it's freezing <clears throat> but not so much no it's um it's it's the reality of where we're today and um, i believe that this industry will react in a manner that uh, understands the current conditions yeah you know it's um it's interesting because i i feel like um it's a reactionary scenario and i really dislike 
being reactionary, you know, you, you want to be forward looking. And, yeah. um, and so our, I think in the construction industry, we're, we're always looking, you know, the, how to fix the thing that's broken versus, you know, there was, uh, you're right. And, but there are, there are visionaries out there. There was a company and I may get this wrong. I thought it was Cardinal industries, but they were the manufacturer of these, you know, these modular homes mm -hmm. and they weren't grandiose. They were single story. And a lot of them were made into retirement communities or hotels or something like that. But you know, the industry or that particular industry folded, it, it didn't work. And, and I'm curious, and I never found out, you know, what were the circumstances that this was a corporation, you know, 30 years ago that saw some merit to this process, and yet, you know, it didn't work. But in the same light, um, I, I think that was perhaps part of a learning curve, and they probably did things, some things well, and probably some other things not so well. So I think it's, there is a process here that takes place that there are some visionaries out there and perhaps it didn't quite work, but um, I think we can learn from that. But as we move forward, you know, I know for a fact right now that, uh, you know, you, we could put a modular home together that, you know, is three, 4,000 square feet, probably worth over a million dollars. And it would challenge its fit and finish would rival anything that you can custom build on a site. Well, yeah, in uh, around 2000, I was building homes pretty actively, and, and I built, we're, do, we're a custom home builder, mm -hmm. and I did about half a dozen homes that were prefabbed. Um, it, it was actually a challenge to get customers to accept that the quality was there, and I, it was fantastic. I mean, these were fully custom homes. They would come out panelized, and we would be under roof day mm -hmm. one. Big home. I mean, these were, you know, they were 5,000 square feet in north. Oh, yeah. um, but the market didn't accept it. Um, they really felt like they weren't getting a custom product. So there's challenges that way. And I, and I think that parallel translates into the millwork industry as well, where, well, it's not a handcrafted item and and I, I think that that demand isn't as high as it used to be for the I, the notion has been dispelled but I, th I think there probably are st still some challenges um, particularly on the residential side on the commercial side not so much people just want their boxes yeah uh, I agree with you I mean it's it's unfortunate that uh, you know these people have these misperceptions of what is a modular home but uh, you know uh, I think over time that will change. And um, I think once they see uh, a home that, um, you know, is coming out of a factory, if you will, and being assembled on siphon, to your point, being under roof within the same day, I mean, you know this better than most other people, but it, it really, you know, to me is, is a disservice when we still stick build homes and yet these poor homes are constantly being inundated by rain. Mm -hmm. And you have to ask yourself, well, where's all this moisture going? You know, and how is it going to be expelled over time? And how good of a job are we doing at that? And are we perhaps, you know, leaving some byproducts behind that, uh, you know, is going to fester there for years? And it's, it could be mold concerns or other uh, concerns. Yeah, that's the, the bad word, mold. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, I, you know, I think that... Um, 
you know, the, the, the contention was it wasn't as good, but I, I, the quality wasn't there. But I would actually argue the contrary because I know that these panels were built on square assembly tables. Oh, yeah. There's only, and there was only one way these houses would go together, and everything had to be perfectly square and flat and level. And, you know, so you had to, you had to make darn sure your foundation was exact. Mm -hmm. And if you got that right, they would go together like butter. If the foundation was off a little bit, it was drama. But in a conventional stick-built home, the carpenters would just kind of ease around it. That's not always good. You know, a good carpenter can make that work. <clears throat> but it's um, uh, we don't have the same skill set to keep driving these custom creations forward anymore. And I, it, it applies to millwork as well. It's... um. Yeah. The, the resources are limited, so let's make the best use. And that's kind of really what I was thinking about as we're talking about moving towards automation because there's there's a notion that, well, all we're doing is eliminating jobs. And it's quite the contrary. I mean, we, we don't have enough people to fill the roles we need, but I've not seen a single plant where I've introduced automation that says we're going to – this is awesome because we can get rid of 20 people. It's like we need these people, and we're going to use their resources and – keep them from doing things that they don't want to do. It's, you know, uh, introducing that level of automation in, you know, go back to your former employer, Laminique. And um, I remember walking through that facility prior to the sale of it. Um, and everything there was pretty much, you know, done by hand. I mean, they had a few quirky little machines there that would do different things, but I think you all introduced a kind of a the next level of automation even within that shop, and uh, you know something as simple just as as a CNC machine with a router on it that could actually cut panels out of you know your plywood, and uh, you know it's you know I think this generation of folks entering the workforce they have a very, they're very comfortable with technology. You know, it's almost as if, if I can't introduce technology into what you do, they get bored very, very quickly. Mm. And there is, you know, there's exceptions to that, but, you know, um, you know, it's, it's not going to happen overnight, but um, I, I can't see that, you know, we're not going to walk back from this. It's got to move in this direction. And, uh, how best to embrace that is, um, you know, is I think what firms struggle with that, um, and, I, and I wish I had a closer relationship with some of these old time mill workshops that how are they transitioning? And I think through your work, you're seeing more of these shops than I ever will. And, um, you know, how you decide that if a, shop, if a particular shop doesn't want to change their format, maybe what they produce will fill a particular niche in a particular market. But I don't see a lot of growth there. It's the other shops that realize that this pool of folks who are making casework is shrinking. And, um, you know, it's now a burden or, you know, an opportunity for us to really streamline what we do. And... I think in the end, provide a better product. I think so. I know so. You know, and, and this will sound a little harsh, but I can, yeah, I have this thought when I walk some shops and it's the smell of death <laughs> because <laughs> there's a resistance to change anything that has historically been done. And and if you're, and, and really maybe it, it's the harshness of what I just said is 
misconstrued because I think there's definitely always will be a place for a handcrafted product. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to come across as though that I, I say it has to all be automated. But if you are going to seek a certain volume that some of these shops have enjoyed over the years um, and employ a certain amount of workforce, if you don't embrace it, it is the smell of death. And when you don't, I, I do see, you think, man, I, I don't see a future for this shop mm-hmm. if you're if you're not going to try to embrace any sort of technology at all. <clears throat> you know, it's it's something we hear all the time. I mean, change is hard. And when you approach someone in that regard, um, you know, I, 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 I can look at R.L. Turner and, um, and, and as we made this progression, you know, how we've used our personal computers and I can see, you know, I'm in a position where I can still reflect back on a high rise that I worked on in Cleveland that we had a computer in that office and it sat in the corner because no one knew what the heck to do with it. Everything we did was manual. We had manual logs, we had drawings all over the place. And, and yet we were still able to, you know, construct this high rise. And I step away from that and I look at where technology is today and that silly iPhone that we have that I can look at drawings, I can contact someone, you know, I can look things up on the internet. I can communicate someone with FaceTime and actually look at something. And I'm seeing that level of, you know, change over the years. And I'm thinking, you know, how much better we can, you know, move information about is is light speed from where we were, where I had to sit at a desk. And if I thought, you know, I had to get some information out quickly, my fax machine was about the only option I had. <laughs> And this was still the, the thermal fax machine with right. that silly piece of paper that came out, had a life of about a week. Exactly. You know, you leave it in the window of your truck. Yeah. yeah. If you didn't Xerox this thing or do something with it, you're going to lose it. And uh, but, but, you know, it's uh, I say that, but then you know I reflect on the whole industry and I say, in my experience over my time, I said, what has radically changed? In the, in the sequence of the construction of the building, what has changed in the last 40 years? Ponder that. And I said, gosh, you know, we're still doing things the way we did 40 years ago. And I see the only area that I think has seen some major improvements is how we place concrete. Mm. You know, with the benefit of these concrete pumps and such, you know, we can get concrete, or, you know, hither and fro pretty quickly. But you know what? Steel still goes up the same way. The metal studs still go up the same way. The drywall still goes up the same way. And, and I really, you know, in some respects, I'm, I'm frustrated by that and say, gosh, you know, we haven't really figured out how to do this better because I think the next step is, is when we start doing these things modularly. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. You know, it takes, um, it's the same conversation I have. It's It takes better front-end engineering work to be able to execute that way if we're going to, construct modularly right because everything has to be right it has to fit you know and i I used to get that pushback all the time from people and you know the shop i was involved in it would be well we're not going to build this because we don't have good field dimensions like well we're going to not not do anything right and uh what are we going to do start building two weeks before it's ready for us we have that that, 
you bring up a point yeah. there that for me was always a challenge anytime you're dealing with casework. And if I ever had the opportunity to work with an architect and, um, you know, we start looking at particular areas where we have to introduce casework, I would always advocate and say, leave me a filler, leave me a filler yeah. somewhere in here so that <clears throat> I didn't have to tell Tim, I said, I'm not ready for you. I don't have studs up. I can't give you dimensions and any of the above. Whereas I'd love to just tell you, Tim, make it, yep. you know, and it's on me if I, it's not right. And I know I've got a two inch filler in here someplace. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, but, uh, <clears throat> you know, that's, that was just part of the, the, you know, you learn that over time, you know, it's, and, and if I can, you know, do something on the design side to make this whole assembly a little easier for us while we're under construction so much the better. But yeah, it's, it's one of, the, one of those little idiosyncrasies of casework is eh, I really don't want to build it because I got cabinet to cabinet, wall to wall. Yeah. I think that it's all things that can be negotiated and, and dealt with, but yeah, you know, we can always figure these things out. It's uh, it's, it's, it's a nuance to casework. It is. It, and maybe it just goes more towards the partnership you have. If you have a good partnership with the people you're working for and that are working for you, the communication it's, is there and that's what, eliminates the yeah problems. it's it's having that conversation as opposed to just simply saying eh, i'm not going to build anything for you because i don't have field dimensions i say well well time out let's you and i spend a little time together let's go room to room to room and say okay where are field dimensions critical and where are they not right yep but but again it goes back to this notion that i have to engage you and hopefully you're engaging me from a subcontractor to a general contractor point of view and there's an open line of communication that says understand how i do work so that you can better appreciate how you can integrate me into this process and uh it's it's you know unless we're talking to each other it's just you know it ain't gonna happen exactly exactly so I don't want to pass by this and I don't want to run too long on time, but I'm really interested in your perspective and the relationship with the millwork contractor and the areas that you saw that maybe mill workers don't think about as conscientiously as they should. You know, in the end, you're providing a finished product. And fit and finish to me was always, you know, the discriminator as to my expectation was that, you know, if you're coming to me as a caseworker, millwork contractor, I'm going to assume that you very much appreciate fit and finish. And if you don't, I have to question and say, why are you in this industry? Because mm. <clears throat> it don't. So it's, we talked about some of those early discussions about, you know, let's get in our shop drawings and get them reviewed and so on and so forth. And then having discussions with regards to where, you know, where do we need field dimensions where we don't. You know, the, and I got to temper that for a moment because I, I've been stung with this on other projects is, you know, often specs are written with very, you know, very specific requirements with regards to whether it's the hardware, the wood, or, you know, certifications and so on and so forth. And one of the frustrations I have as a general contractor is when on bid day, you know, we're getting reams and reams of, proposals and quotes and you know I might be in the bedroom helping the estimator and saying you know he may look to me and says hey these are all casework bids take a look at them these are my hot points and make sure this covered you know so on and so forth and um, 
And I had an occurrence on a project at Purdue where it was very clear there was certain certifications that were required. This particular contractor was not certified. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And uh, so I made an appeal to the architect and I said, I- I'm not compliant with your specifications with this particular contractor or subcontractor on this casework. I said, but are you willing to entertain a, a conversation whereby without the certification, you are comfortable that this particular subcontractor can meet your requirements? And uh, I don't know if I got lucky, but he said, yeah, I could do that. Um, and I felt fortunate also that the owner didn't come back to me, the architect, the architect didn't come back to me and said, well, you know, you got to give me a credit. Mm. I said, no, you got the benefit of the credit when I turned in my bid. Exactly. So, um, well, it's an interesting point that I think is lost on many subcontractors that when it's bid day for you, you have very little time to sort through, I don't know if hundreds is, but you have a lot of numbers and trades all across the board. I mean, sometimes you're able to lock them in earlier, right? But it's, it's surprising to me how I didn't really fully appreciate that it might be a couple hours before you're actually, you need to submit your final number oh, yeah. that you're, you're reviewing these. You know, if you've not ever gone through that process, um, it's it's unbelievable. You know, my first exposure to that is that uh, when we I told you about this high rise in Cleveland, as a contractor, we bid it as a hard bid. We had, you know, when these bids were coming in for, if you can imagine, $150 million high rise, I mean, there was 30 or 40 people in this room. And I was just one little piece here. And my goal was I had one component that I had to make sure I had the bids in. And I had to be intimate with those specifications and review them. And when I got these bids and I presented them to the chief estimator, I said, we got six bids. This is the cleanest one. This is the number. Then, you know, whatever. Even through that process, I mean, they made mistakes. But to your point, flip over to R.L. Turner and we're bidding a $6 million whatever. Uh, It is just, you know, controlled chaos as these bids are coming in. And in today's world, because we can email bids, I mean, you know, at one time you had the cushion of saying, well, it's either going to get mailed in or somebody's going to deliver it to us or there's some things didn't move at that same pace. You know, maybe you got Mm -hmm. a fax here, but really most people didn't have faxes. Right. But in today's world, you know, with the benefit of these emails, I mean, this poor estimator sitting at one computer trying to put numbers together and then on another computer, all he's seeing is all these emails with, uh, you know, with all these bids. And there's another person at that seat who's printing these things, printing them. And, you know, it's oftentimes we don't have time to print them. You just look at them and say, it's pretty hectic. So I, I give anyone credit who is sitting on the estimating side of the world and in today's environment with technology and the speed of which these things can come across. And, uh, you know, that's just, that's half the battle. Somebody's got to look at these things and say, is it complete? What are they excluding? What are they including? And what have they missed? Yeah. The, um, the scope and magnitude of that. And est- I always said is having spent a lot of time estimating on the casework mm-hmm. side, um, it's, it's, you call it estimate, but really it's an art It's it's because there's lots of give and take and an understanding and estimates the right word, you know, how much time is it going to take me, all these sorts of things. But 
the depth of details that need to be gone through just just in the millwork category right mm-hmm. in division six it's there i mean the project manual i mean there'll be many oh, yeah. many pages so you really have to pay attention to that and the thing that i always found frustrating is i i know that i had competitors at that time that intentionally knew how to game the system because they knew low bid would win and so they would focus on the things that probably would jump out and intentionally not pay attention to the things or slip a little exclusions in, right, to kind of game the yeah. contractors. And so I always found that frustrating. It's like, holy cow, they're 100 grand less on a $500,000 bid package. and They win the order. You know, I, I don't have a good answer to that. I remember um, we did a very large project that had a large quantity of fencing in it. And... Uh, I had a relationship with another fencing contractor and I had to call him. I said, well, you, you, know, you weren't low. <clears throat> and he accepted it, you know, as a gentleman. And, and he says, well, when you have time, I want you to sit down with me and I want, you, I want to educate you. <clears throat> I said, sure. So he went through his bid and he had the specs here and he had his bid. And he went through every line item and said, here's the gauge, here's the thickness of the vinyl, here's the post and so on and so forth. And then, you know, I could see the correlation. And then I say, well, this guy's the low bidder. And I said, well, let's look at his bid. And I said, well, this is in confidence, but I'm not sharing numbers with you, but I'll, I'll we'll share that proposal. I said, here's a delta, here's a delta. And there were just mm-hmm. minute points mm-hmm. that in the end, essentially what he told me was, this guy did not beat the specs. Right. <laughs> so it's like, eh. but you know, it's well, it's such a specialty that you know, unless you can get into the weeds to understand, uh, you know, what an ASTM standard is telling you, and say what's the difference. But to your point, no, I get it, and um, there are always people who are going to, like you say, work the system right. And then I think that you know, I always took it. Maybe it wasn't appreciated sometimes by general contractors, but my role was to get into the specs as early as I could. And then have an education, if I could, with typically it would go through the general contractor to the architect. But I always mm. thought, you know, a lot of times the, the project manual is just boilerplate. The architect's got a gazillion things on his mind. So he's got this, he's got this division six that he's going to just crank out. And there's a lot of unnecessary specs that weren't even pertinent. But a lot of times it'd be costing the owner, mm-hmm. you know, tens of thousands of dollars and so i would try to educate to see if i could get the specs changed for everybody so what i was trying to do was get everything on as even a keel playing everyone field on like a, a level playing yeah, field right. and, and you know and and that's appreciated and uh, and i hear what you're saying is you know you have the opportunity when you you know if there's a particular project that you are saying hey this is a great project it fits in our wheels files you know it's from the timing and so on and so forth let's make sure everyone's on the same level playing field by all means, scrutinize those specs, ask the questions, get them in front of the architect, and um, let's, you know, it's it's to your, I think it's to everyone's advantage if we understand that, you know, through your efforts, which at times are appreciated and, you know, rewarded, other times it's like, I did all this work and didn't get it. Right, <laughs> well, and, you know, I, I can remember being on the wrong side of losing a, a contract and um and the owners ultimately would become educated say in one case it was a hospital system and um they just decided well we know we're not getting what we want we know that 
this contractor is notoriously bad, but we're not going to overlook the money. And we're just going to say, we're going to take low bid and we're going to say, we expect that we're going to have to spend 10 or 20% to fix the problems. And we're still going to be money ahead and we're just going to live with it. And that, that's frustrating that that's the way things roll. But a lot of times say, even as the general contractor, you don't have, you ultimately don't have say in how that goes. You know, uh, it's the reality of what we do, and it's not perfect. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the circumstances are always a little bit different is who's your owner, who's the owner's rep, who's the architect, you know, what's their level of competence, how much time do they put into this? And to your point, do they just pull a boiler spec out and say, here's casework, and didn't give it much thought beyond that. But, you know, that's the reality of where we work. Well, and I think that, you know, the point that I'd like to emphasize is that as a millwork contractor, we've just come through a period where you could throw anything against the wall and it would stick. I mean, there's more work out there than we can produce. Mm -hmm. But I think we're entering a period where that's going to change and we need to tighten up the ship a little bit. And I think that um, it benefits you to completely understand. It's not a matter of just throwing all these bids out there. I think being really selective of the the contractors that you'd like to work with is important. Understanding the players within the general contracting firms and understanding the owners that you're working for is equally important as well as relationships with the architects. So having, whether it's, I, however your organization set up project managers, estimating department, but investing the time and building those relationships, I think is very important. And I think it's overlooked often. And I think because otherwise you're just throwing numbers out there and ultimately what it's going to do is cost you money. Cause if you're working for contractors that are just, notoriously bad to work for. They don't have their dimensions correct. They don't communicate well. I mean, there's nothing like showing up with a case, a truck full of casework and it's not ready, even though you've been promised it is. I'm in total agreement. And uh, <laughs> one thing uh, I didn't fully appreciate when I started in this industry is, and it's become something I had to kind of learn or became aware of is that subcontractors do not necessarily provide the same bid number to their respective general contractors. You can't. I'm sorry. You can't. <laughs> well, because I mean, I used to call it the, the, the PETA factor, right? But it's the pain in the rear, but it's um, sometimes they're just contractors, you know, that are going to cost you money because the way they run their ship. Right. Well, and I have seen, and I've had discussions with other subcontractors who very honestly tell me uh, they may not give me the best number because they had some occurrence with something or someone, and it's forever been a burn in their butt. And, um, you know, they just outright tell me, it says, you know, I'm not going to give you my best number. And, uh, you know, sometimes we can work through that, sometimes we can't. And yet there are other folks that we do work with and have worked with that we do get a better number right you know, than, than someone else you know and i get that you know it makes sense you know it's the if the cost for me to do business with you is x and the cost for me to do business with another party is z the bids reflect that yep exactly and there's lots of factors that weigh into the cost. It's it's the communication, it's right. the scheduling, the way, and then there's the payment, all those things. You know, there's you know there's uh, people that you work for that you know, 
it's going to be a long time in coming before you receive the payment. And um, not always the general contractor's control, but oftentimes I, I, you see that it's a historically similar. Yeah, and, and I've always taken that very personally because I, I'm an advocate for that people need to get paid. Yeah. And, you know, you know, fortunately we're in an industry that have conversations with other members of the family, and I tell them that, you know, I got to wait 30 days before I can even submit an application. Then I wait another 30 days before I get paid. I am 60 days into a project, you know, spending money before I ever see my first check. Now that subcontractor, he's on another 30 days. So he yeah. might be out 90 days. Exactly. So when that earthwork guy shows up and he starts pushing dirt, you know, it might be three months before he gets his first check. I've always taken offense to even, you know, if I'm doing... If I have a contractor, a subcontractor, my, you know, in my house, and I, and I want to get a new roof installed, and the first thing he tells me, he says, "Well, you got to put fifty percent down." I says, well, "I'm not. I'm not going to do that." He says, "If you don't have the financial wherewithal for you to purchase material, I don't want to work with you. Go away." <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's you know, uh, you know, you you raise a good point. So understanding that timeline, the last thing I want to do is call you up and say, hey, Tim, I can't pay you. And you're saying, wait a minute, it's been 90 days. What's the deal? And uh, so... Um, Which, by the way, is the best case scenario. That's assuming nothing went wrong, right? Yeah, I know. On, on submittals or any it's, other notion which yeah, throws it out. I, right? I know, but yeah. it's... Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm sensitive to that. Um, and I've always been, you know, I can control what I can control. So I want to make sure that we get our pay apps out. We get the timelines and the agendas. We get the approvals. And... Um, you know, I've spent many a time talking to owners and say, I gave you a draft payment request. I need to know, have you reviewed it? Do you have any comments? Because I want to get you this pay app, you know, by the end of the month so we can get paid within this 30-day window. And um, I will do whatever I can to make sure that that is happening. Again, you know, it's we have resources and we can absorb some things, but it's silly and pointless if I'm going to engage a particular owner on a particular project that you have expectations of me and I have expectations of you, and not the least of which is if I've done the work, pay me. Exactly. You know, and I also would like to urge everybody, regardless of what capacity you're in, to allow people that you are employing or whether it's a vendor, material, whatever, to allow them a profit. Many times I felt like the people I dealt with were only happy when they were certain that I've lost money. <laughs> they drove me to the point where I'd not made a penny yeah. was uh, uh, the mentality. And I never appreciated that. And I always wanted anybody that worked for me, like, I want you to make money. Mm -hmm. I need you to be around. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, no, it's... And, um, and I often, I, I had told subcontractors i've told them you're not charging enough <laughs> i i know business and i know that you're not charging enough and it's not <laughs> going to be sustainable for you and that you don't want to do that because you're you're giving money away but um you know I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who is starting up his own um he has a cnc uh, shop but it's for uh, metals mm -hmm. it's and he's making components long story how how he got to this point and uh, the shop that he had worked with had closed. So he kind of took the machines and started his own. I kind of sat down with him and I, and I went through this whole litany of costs and I said, you know, what's your machine cost? What's your rent? What's your lease? You know, 
what's your maintenance, what's longevity, and so on and so forth. And I said, you know, Chris, it's just not about your time. You know, it's not the cost of materials or your time or your bits. I mean, you have all these expendables. You have a machine that potentially has got a life, or I know it has a life, and then over time it's going to, you know, you're going to have to replace. Those are all things you need to incorporate into this number that says, if you want product X, it's going to cost you this. Exactly. I, and, uh, you know, and if you don't do that, then you'll survive for a period of time, but there's no growth, there's no expansion. And when you got to replace a $40,000 piece of machinery, you're going to the bank to borrow the money. Which, by the way, is never 40000 anymore. But yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. It's, yeah, it's, no, but, no, it's, you know, it's, and I'm not the expert in this, but, you know, to truly understand what is the cost for you to make, say, a base cabinet, it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things to consider. Exactly. I, I, I hear the comment a lot when I'm helping somebody look at their numbers and they'll say, well, I just pass materials through. You're losing money from the very beginning. How much time does it take you to put a material list together, to order materials, to warehouse them, to handle them? And then you're going to be expected to replace them if you damage a sheet mm -hmm. or two, right? Oh, yeah. um, so if you're not putting markup on every piece all the way, you're losing money from the jump. No, and it's it's not as if from an owner's perspective, he, you know, that owner needs to understand that I'm not doing this in order to inflate a number. I'm doing this so that I can pay my employees a living wage, reward them by way of a bonus, mm -hmm. have capital and reserves in place that I can go ahead and replace a particular machine and not go so badly in debt that if I have a bad year, I can't make my payments. But, you know, that's the cost of doing business. Right. And that's the reason I gave up home building. Um, <laughs> is a, I, I had always done millwork as well, but I um, I gave up the home building side in 08, 09 when it just banking crisis happened. And um, for custom home builders, it really got to the point where I, I was seeing contracts go for cost plus five or 6%. And I thought, good night. I don't need practice. Mm -mm. I mean, that's literally, I mean, that you're losing money at that, that margin um, for sure. And if you have one little thing go wrong, you're definitely upside down. But um, it, I, I think that a lot of people kind of work on those skinny margins and it's, it's just not sustainable. So I'd encourage everybody that's listening that if you're involved in the, the costing side, that if the work you're doing only can tolerate that kind of percentage, then maybe it's time to look at, different segments and find a niche that has better margin in it. You say, I don't need to practice. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. All right. So let's move forward a little bit. And I, I, I feel like we're running a little long in time, but I've, I've loved this conversation. Tell me about a project that you ran where maybe it didn't go like you thought and a lesson and a takeaway that you came away with. There's, in some respects, I feel fortunate that, you know, you know, not every project I worked on was a home run. And um, there are other projects that I was just thankful we got done and we could walk away from. And, you know, as I evaluate these projects, I, you know, I, I kind of go into, into two kind of mindsets, if you will. There, there are those jobs that I can evaluate strictly from a monetary point of view and say that we make, that we make money or didn't we make money. 
did we make our fee or didn't we make our fee? And there's others that were, you know, for other reasons, you know, were just not managed very well. And yet we still, you know, we made money, but I just felt that it was just, you know, the the relationship was bad. You know, there were some subcontractors that we had difficult times with. You know, it was just so much effort to get to this point that it just didn't seem to make sense. When, when it's all said and done, you know, what am I talking about is I'm very dependent as a project manager in an office, which is different than my relationship when I was actually working for this other larger company where we were physically on site every day. Now I have a very much dependency on my superintendent. You know, there's expectations I have of my superintendent. There's expectations on how he can, he or she should conduct themselves. And uh, so I'm, I'm reliant on that because they become the face of, you know, who I am. And, you know, some of the biggest challenges I've had was when I've had a superintendent who is more interested in his or her ego than getting the job done. Mm. And unfortunately, when you have that kind of a scenario, subcontractors tend to react and we have what might be thought of as, you know, kind of a hostile environment on the job site. And those are just consumed too much of my time. And I think fortunately uh, for me, I've had enough respect within my organization that I've been able to go to my bosses and say, I want this person removed. Mm. They are no longer an asset. They're a liability to me. They are casting distrust. There's no harmony. There's no, you know, it's just not working. And um, I look back at my military time, and, and I remember I was a company commander, and I had my first sergeant, and he is, you know, the top NCO within the company. And um, <clears throat> and it's, in my mind, he wasn't doing his job. I, I went to my commander, and I said, I have to make a change here. Uh, this isn't working. And he says, whatever you want to do, I'll support it. But, I, you know, he was not the person that was going to make the change. I had to go to the command sergeant major, you know, the, in the within the battalion. So I was up all night just, you know, just, you know, beyond, you know, just really just anxiety thinking, gosh, you know, I'm going to have to call this guy in, into my office and essentially fire him. And because that's the way they left it, you know. <laughs> I said, well, if you don't want him, you got to fire him. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, this guy's twice as old as I am. He's been in the military for over 20, if not 30 years. And, uh, and I have all this anxiety. I call him into the office and I, and I, and I tell him, I said, you know, it's not working and uh, I'm going to relieve you of this command. And, you know, he looked at me and said, you know, I never liked this job in the first place. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, taking the approach that, you know, at times we don't have the right people in the right position. And, um, those jobs that have been most difficult for me is when we had the wrong personalities and the wrong people. And, you know, I would go as far as to say that there's been occasions where I've had conversations with subcontractors with regards to their field personnel to tell them this is not right. Just They don't have the right work ethic. They don't have any respect for my superintendent and a change needs to occur and we can do this either one of two ways, and the choice is yours. <laughs> right. Well, what you're telling me is interesting because it's 
sometimes it's just a personality thing, right? The, the personalities don't work. Um, but the overarching point is the reflection and the analysis of the projects are very important to being able to grow your business and move forward. So understanding, okay, we had a bad one. We had a clunker for whatever reason, but understanding why mm-hmm. and then taking action on those. And so those ideas and it's the data that's important. It's financial data, but it's also the data of the satisfaction of your customer and the satisfaction of your employees throughout the project. And, you know, it's, uh, I have seen over the years owners who are understand the process are engaged and will look at us and saying, well, you got a lot of hard work in front of you. I'm glad you, you know, you persevered and you got it done. Get a pat on the back. Um, and there are, you know, those other occasions where um, the sheer poor drawings, poor coordination, and you're trying to get everything kind of reassembled and you're hoping that we can get past the finger pointing and we can kind of work together and let's, let's get this done. It's not good for you. It's not good for me. Let's just get it done. And um, I think I can tell you, and I, you know, it's, I don't know that I've ever walked away from a job, but we always got it done. <laughs> exactly. Perseverance it takes is uh, the most important thing, I think. Norb, I've enjoyed this conversation. I um, I want to move on to just kind of some fun sure. questions at the end. And yeah. um, I feel like we could probably talk for hours on this because it, it, to me it's fascinating. And, and I've always been a student of business, of whatever it is. And the, the, the why does it work and why does it not well, work? And you know, as I reflect on my career and I said, you know, what, what did I do differently or, you know, what did I learn or, or so on and so forth? You know, if I look at anything, it's, it's from the perspective is I do my homework. And uh, that takes time and takes energy. So whether it's totally immersing yourself in the contract or the specifications, but know your project, know your people, and uh, do your homework. Well, and it's an important point you raise because as a leader on a project within your business, you've done your homework and that translates because people understand that you've done your homework and the people that are working for you under direct supervision or not are also going to say, well, I know Norb has done his homework and he's going to expect that from me. So you're raising the game for everybody. And I, I, I've seen it where you walk on a project and, you know, like, good night. This guy doesn't know anything about what's happening here. Oh, yeah. No, it's, you know, it, it, it ultimately it gets into this thing of, you know, Respect. I look back at my career and I say, who have, who has impacted me in my, you know, relationship with how I work? It comes from many different angles, but for the short term that I spent in the military, it, it was very obvious to me that, in the one hand, I was privileged because I was an officer, you know, and, and in that rank, you certainly have a certain command. But the reality was that that didn't mean squat. Unless I had the respect of the people who were under me, and I respected them this wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. So it didn't matter that I could you know, stand in front of my platoon and I can bark out orders. The reality was that it, as you know, the situation begins to unravel, ultimately in the military, you have to understand that you are an organization that is going to go to combat. Can't ever dismiss that. And in that scenario, I'm going to take these folks to combat with me. And you know, there's a light, this is life and death. So I was always big on training, command structure to understand how we're going to move from point A to point B because carry that forward, that's the mindset that I have for every project. 
granted we're not going to combat but it's the notion that there has to be this level of respect and that respect to what you said tim is is engendered by the fact that says this guy knows what he's doing he understands this well and then with the respect you also get the trust mm-hmm. which is important whether you're talking about a military operation or just in a working environment if you have trust you know because what'll happen at some point it's going to hit the fan whether you've made a mistake or somebody else has made a mistake and if you have trust in the relationship you can move forward and move through it and have an open conversation that isn't going to uh, feel no, dangerous and, and and become sideways is because there's trust, you're, you're not going to get into this finger-pointing game and say, oh, it's all your fault. Exactly. No, it's, I think for those who have, you know, those of us who have lived through this, I mean, this is my perspective. This is what I think uh, has made it possible for me to enjoy what I'm doing for the last years. Mm-hmm. And it's, again, I feel fortunate, you know, as for the guy who wanted to be a carpenter, who wound up in the School of Architecture, who spent 40 years in construction, <laughs> well, that reminds me, you, you touched on that earlier, and I did want to go back to this. How do you feel now? Because I think we're exiting an era where it was a foregone conclusion that higher education in the form of college was the path. And I think that um, I'm seeing now that we should probably be educating and placing a higher value on the trades. Mill workers in particular don't have a refined apprenticeship program. You know, I find that challenging. Would you advise your children or have in today's world if they really felt like college wasn't for them to not spend money? I would probably, you know, contrary to the way my parents, you know, kind of viewed from their perspective, they saw, you know, for us to have an opportunity in this country, we had to get an education. That was their, their mindset. I probably... Uh, again, our oldest son is a professor of psychology. Our, our youngest son is an RN. But if I had another child who truly wanted to pursue, I don't know that I'd be as firm in that regard to tell him or her that, no, you got to go to college. I, I'm convinced that, you know, based on my experience, that there are opportunities that you can pursue that perhaps are not going to land you you know, the tremendous amount of income, but a comfortable income where you can pursue your passion, whether that's in millwork or whether that's as a project manager. But again, it's, again, Tim, it's having viable apprenticeship programs, I think is key to this. And introducing kids to these opportunities, even at the high school level, uh, you know, the high school that I went to had no shops. I mean, this was college prep. You know, you were taking Latin, you were taking mm-hmm. math. You know, this is a, the way it's going to be. <clears throat> I had a conversation with a gentleman that they told me that this particular high school, uh, which hasn't changed much over the years, is actually going to start now offering more technical courses, whether it's in computer-aided design or otherwise. So it's like, oh, my gosh, you know. It's taken them 40 years or, you know, to make that transition. But I think there is a recognition, even from this institution that's been in Cleveland for over 100 years as a college, Jesuit college preparatory school, that says, no, we have to be able to understand that we have to offer these 
young kids other skills that may not put them into college. You know, it's interesting because I think we've come through, like we went from an era where it, shop was just always included in the public high school yeah, well. and then it went away but now the vocational training is coming back and and there's no substitute for education period mm-hmm. but the form the education takes could be different than a traditional college and it's not to say that i think a college education is invaluable but it's not always the right path and particularly at the cost it is today uh, i'm in agreement and where what i struggle with is i look at career paths and i look at this, this is just my personal opinion. I look and say, in my course of studies, whether it's in the undergraduate or graduate degree, there are courses there that have impacted me that do come into play as I make decisions with regards to a particular project or so on and so forth. What I wonder about is that there are, upset somebody, you know, folks who are in project management roles in, as a general contractor who have not had the benefit of those particular courses that I did. Mm. And it's not to say that that person is not going to be successful, but I often wonder at times as to how I frame my decisions based on my background as opposed to someone else who's going to frame their decisions you know, from a project management point of view without the benefit of that experience. And I think that's always going to be the case, that it didn't matter. I mean, you know, my experience in my school, you know, let's put 10 project managers in here. And I think how we make decisions or how we approach a particular opportunity is always going to be tainted by our background. Do we then evaluate that and say, well, you know, that made a better decision or he made or, you know, so I've struggled with that because I, you know, I've, I've worked with other project managers who don't necessarily have my background. And, um, and you know, the decisions they've made, I've, I've kind of contemplated and said, well, I probably would not have made that decision. But, again, it's it's just a matter of perspective, and, you know, we move on from there. And is one better than the other? I, I don't necessarily know. But I, I, I think having that knowledge, I think, is helpful in uh, in coming to that conclusion. Yep. I, I think that's a lot of a lot of crazy stuff out there. Yeah, yeah. I see that. I see that. I'm going to ask some fun questions. Good. Uh, I know one of the things, I know you've got a hobby. You've got a little CNC, right? I do. It's, uh, you know, as I retired, I, I told myself I, I want to do two things. I want to stay busy, but I also, you know, wanted to do something that would challenge my brain. So I was really kind of undertaking something new, and I said, gosh, you know, what do I know about a CNC machine? And, you know, what the machine does is pretty, you know, it's it's a machine. But how you communicate with that machine is a whole different world. And uh, I was fortunate enough that uh, we have a great school here, the Mark Adams School of Woodworking, mm. where I took a one-week-long one course, uh, and I got the fundamentals. And it was from there that uh, I went ahead and made another investment, and uh, have a small machine. And, you know, the irony is I tell people that I may spend, you know, four, five, six, eight hours on a computer getting a particular little thing to come out the way I want it to, and then the machine time is just machine time, you know. And uh, But uh, I've enjoyed that, and uh, uh, it's, it's intriguing, and, and I love the challenge. And, and what I'm doing is this isn't 
cutting edge CNC stuff. This is pretty basic, but uh, I, I do like the challenges. In uh, you know, someone presents something and says, "Can you do this?" And I say, well, "Let me think about it." I don't know if you're aware of this, but the other aspect of what occupies my time is that I've really kind of committed to Habitat for Humanity. Oh, nice. So I have, and it's taken me a lifetime. I'm finally sort of kind of maybe working as a carpenter. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. What's um what's going on in the Habitat world these days? I'm not in touch. Well, it's uh, the organization that I'm working with is, uh, and these are affiliates, and there is uh, the Boone County Habitat for Humanity, a uh, small organization, but they typically will build three homes in a, in a season. And, you know, we don't work through the winter, and we typically go from, say, April to November. Typically do, again, three homes. These are all crawl space, ranches, you know, three-bedroom, two-bath, you know, with a two-car garage. And I'm pretty excited over the fact that we do these in a period of about uh, two months you know, and uh, so within this window is how we get three homes built. You know, it's uh, it's nothing. Uh, they're efficient homes. They're um, well built. And uh, but beyond that, I mean, the, it's what can I tell you? You know, it's we have a waterproof flooring. The bedrooms get carpet. There's three bed or two bathrooms and, uh, you know, nothing special there. There's a, you know, off the shelf kind of casework that goes in. And uh, the idea is to to provide a solution or an opportunity right. for someone that might not have oh, an no. opportunity for a home. I had a family, we, we finished a house last year and the city of Lebanon requires that their new homes have a two car garage. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, it's not that habitat is in the business of providing shelter for your car, yeah. but it's just the reality of, you know, the zoning requires a two car garage. And I had a family come up to me after we were done and we're standing in the garage and they said, this garage is bigger than the apartment that I was in. Mm -hmm. And he had a family of three kids. Oh, wow. like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's uh, the impact of these families who are fortunate to, uh, to go through this process. And, and what I have to, you know, a myth I have to dispense with this quickly is these are not giveaways. Mm. These families, uh, you know, the benefit they occur is that they get uh, their mortgage is the cost of the work. Mm. All the labor that shows up to complete these homes is is free. Uh, my time on those habitat sites is, you know, I'm not charging anything. I'm there because I enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I can use all my years of experience to help, in this case, my our site superintendent, kind of facilitate things, I say, well, that's I'm thankful that I can take what I've learned and put it to use. And uh, but anyways, the family then, you know, for whatever the cost of construction is. They get a zero percent uh, loan against that, you know, for the cost. Mm. So it's uh, they are incurring an obligation uh, with a mortgage, just like anyone else. But you know, homes that you know, we did a home that was appraised, I think, in Lebanon for I don't know what, hundred eighty, two hundred thousand dollars. You know, that's not what the cost of materials was, but their mortgage is a zero interest mortgage for for the cost of the construction. So it's um, like I said, it's not a giveaway. Um, Habitat does uh, retain, um, I forget the exact term, but they stay, they, they retain an ownership right to the house so that, you know, it's, I don't think people would do this, but occasionally I think people have done when they just flip the house, but that's not the case. Uh, yeah, I love that. It's um, you giving people a leg up 
but it's like I've, I've told people I've asked me for things over the years. It's like, you're welcome to anything I have as long as you're helping yourself. So yeah, I love the philosophy. That's awesome. Do you read? I do. Yeah. What are you currently <laughs> reading? Or do you have a book that you frequently, do you have a book you share with people? Oh, there's been a, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting there. Um, what I'm currently reading is uh, a book on building sciences and it's a whole discussion about this, this inner, you know, this climate that we create inside the home and how it reacts to the climate on the outside and all this vapor and water and transmissions mm. and dew points and all these things that go on and how that whole technology or that whole something I don't think we gave much thought to. This isn't lightweight nighttime oh, no, reading. No, no. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's, it, it you know, I enjoy it because, I mean, it's this constant willingness to, to have this, I want to learn. And, mm. um, and, and that's always fascinated me. And uh, so that's one aspect of it. The other aspect, because my wife's a nurse, I'll get into these books that she brings home and we'll have discuss, or, you know, that we'll encounter. And, you know, I, I read a book here recently. It was a bit of a journal's investigation about uh, these different implants that, you know, um, that are implanted into people and how the reg the regulations surrounding those are not what you might think, but, so there's another aspect. And then, yeah, on occasion, I'll take a break from all that and I'll read uh, some, uh, oh, we were men once, you know, that that whole, there, there is that military aspect of it that kind of gets into this mm -hmm. thing that uh, I enjoy reading. And uh, so it, it kind of covers, you know, anything from, you know, perhaps the time that I spent in the military to my wife and my discussions with her regarding the medical field. Mm -hmm to what I consider my passion is this whole building sciences thing about uh, super insulated homes and ventilation and heat recovery and those kind of things. <laughs> I love that. Forever a student. Oh, I've, you have to. Yeah. I have to. I it's, love that. Like I said, you got to do your homework. Yeah. That's contagious. Right on. Hey, with that, I think I'm going to sign off. Hey, Tim, I, again, I, I appreciate it. I was, I have to tell you, honestly, I was a little apprehensive. I didn't know where this was going. I really don't like talking much about myself, but, um, you know, uh, I, I think you and I did dwell on a, a few things that perhaps might shed some light or enlightenment on, you know, perhaps, you know, this relationship between vendors, subcontractors and general contractors. And if it's been at all helpful, I say good. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate you. I, uh, I've enjoyed the conversation and honestly, I feel like I could do, second and third episodes pretty easily with you um, because I really love the in-depth look at all of that. But um, I'm going to sign off the way I typically sign off, which is uh, work hard, be kind, and take care of mommy. <laughs> I tell my children. All right. Thanks, Norm. Thanks, Tim. Mm -hmm.